This is a Yokogawa Australia New Zealand podcast. Welcome back to a new episode of Yokogawa Debunks conversations with industry experts to demystify misconceptions and myths we hear in the process instrumentation and process automation space. I'm your host, Sean Carhill, and thank you again for joining us. Now, today we'd like to continue our chat with Stefan Nell from Real-Time Instruments, or RTI, Australia. Hi, Stefan, and thanks again for joining us once more. Oh, thank you very much, Sean. Um, pleased to be back, and um, hopefully got quite a few likes on, on the previous uh, session, and uh, looking forward to this one. Thank you, Stefan. It certainly lead, led to many questions coming up, which hopefully we're going to be able to uh, answer today during this session. So, Stefan, now I believe that there are two main configurations of these nucleonic devices. I'm just wondering if you could give us a bit of an insight into the two technologies. Yeah, sure, Sean. Um, probably the most common um, utilization of radioactive isotope technology within any operating or processing plant is the measurement of density and even level of materials within hoppers and chutes and that's where we would utilize the cobalt 60 or cesium 137 isotopes and essentially in 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 a level type setup how it works is that um you got a nuclear isotope mounted in in a uh, lead encased enclosure on the one side with the detector on the other side, and as a material, the level rises within the hopper or tank. It then uh, blocks off the radiation, and it's detected by the detector, and then will give you a indication of level within that hopper or vessel. The second is the use of cesium-137 or cobalt-60 in density measurement. And as I mentioned in the first episode, it essentially works on the principle of the the denser the material becomes, the less and less radioactive uh, energy is transmitted through the pipe and uh, is detected by the detector on the other side of the vessel or pipe. And it then uh, computes to then display uh, the density of the material. So less radiation means higher density of material in the pipe or vessel. The other use of uh, radionuclides is for neutron activation, or as we mentioned before, prompt gamma neutron activation analysis. And this means, uh, measures the elemental composition of material on conveyor belts um, as it's being conveyed from uh, some safe arguments like a crusher to a stockpile. Now, um, this works um, on the principle of a neutron generator being either Californium-252, a neutron accelerator tube, which is electrical device, or americium-beryllium isotopes, and it, it emits a neutron from the source. Now, let's look at an individual neutron, but we have to consider that this is actually a neutron flux or a cloud that's transmitted into the material. When we spoke about safety in the first episode, what we have to remember is the fact that um, it's it's in the best interest of these uh, OEMs that supply this type of technology to maintain that neutron flux or keep the neutron flux within the boundaries of the analyzer and kind of limit the amount of neutrons that would escape or uh, get uh, emitted outside. And in doing so, the more neutrons you have inside the analyzer, the higher the probability of that neutron um, then colliding or interacting with the atom of a specific nucleus and um, the activation then occurring. So that's also a function of the uh, 
gamma production efficiency within the analyzer. Now, as this neutron collides or interacts with the atom, it imparts the energy. The uh, atom returns to its natural state by emitting a gamma. That gamma is at a specific uh, energy level and is deemed the specific to that element. And as I mentioned before, through spectral analysis, you can then determine what that element is by just looking at the peaks of those energy levels. And... Um, this is very, very useful determining elemental composition of materials where you want to control specific parameters into some pyrometallurgical processes. Also to build stockpiles to a specific quality of, um, that's required in the further processing of that material. The use of this technology is of particular interest to companies that uh, do cement production where they want to control the lime saturation factor and the iron and silica modulus. These are just some of the parameters that they would like to control in terms of producing a very high quality clinker that ultimately leads to the production of cement. In coal mining, there's a term called calorific value and ash. These are of particular interest when you look at some uh, boiler requirements where they can only burn a uh, specific type of coal that's within a range of some specific calorific value. This is particularly important when you have to uh, start looking at improving boiler efficiency, which is ultimately amount of coal input for um, megawatt hour produced. In steel production, it's very similar to coal where they produce a product called sinter. The basicity control or calcium silica ratio is of high importance to them in order to produce a, a sinter that can be used in a process further downstream in order to produce uh, iron. There are, there are various applications for this technology, and the fact that it's a non-intrusive type technology does make logical sense for, to reduce the capital or capital spend over time in terms of maintenance requirements on some of this instrumentation. And that's what makes it attractive for a lot of industries. But again, the myth regarding radiation safety is a determining factor in whether this technology gets adopted and applied or not. The the availability of uh, data on a real-time basis is vitally important for operators to start looking at improving operational efficiency and making some proactive uh, decisions in regards to control um, of downstream processes. And this is where nuclear equipment becomes invaluable in making up the arsenal of what these operators have currently to provide some real value to their shareholders and stakeholders within this business. Uh, we've also seen a sharp acceptance of uh, the density type measurement technology within dredging plants. Normally, the dredging company would be paid based on a tonnage dredged. Combining the uh, density system with some type of a mass flow or velocity measurement device can provide you data in terms of the dry tonnage that's been dredged or conveyed. And ultimately, that's what uh, the companies would be paid on. And also in some of these mineral processing plants and even coal handling processing plants, they are pumping a lot of the tailings or what they would call the rejects onto tailings dams. And to maintain a specific density, they have to control that by the addition of water to prevent pipes from blocking up. 
and also in terms of uh, being paid on and looking at how much of the materials actually been rejected to do metallurgical accounting within the process. Those are probably the two major applications of the technology within these various industries. Um, I'm sure that there's probably much more of those, but these are the two major ones. We could obviously uh, assist our customers in determining whether this technology will be suitable for their specific application. All they need to do is just get in contact with us and we can assess this and determine the feasibility of uh, such a project going ahead. Um, at, at this point, I think it, uh, it, it should be quite interesting to mention the fact that um, with the use of all these isotopes, the ambi, californium, cobalt, cesium and, and various others, there is a term that's used, it's called the half-life of the isotope. In determining a specific application or the use of a specific type of isotope within an application is dependent on some external factors such as the penetration of the uh, outside vessel walls or the thickness of material on a conveyor belt and that kind of thing. So um, there, there are specifics that needs to be considered. And I would just like to mention that Californium 252 that's used in online analysis has got a half-life of approximately 2.65 years. So essentially it means that um, if you start off with a specific activity and uh, there's a, what they call an automatic source decay that occurs as these disintegrations occur within the isotope itself, so after 2.65 years, it will reach half its actual initial capacity or uh, radiation level. With with this type of isotope, um, you can actually top it up. Uh, cobalt-60 is uh, 5.3 years. After it's reached that 5.3 years, if it's not, a, uh, if it's not, it cannot penetrate the vessel or, or pipe wall anymore. It gets discarded. Similar to cesium-137, it's got a 30-year half-life. Ambi has got a 432-year half-life, so it lasts extremely long. Now, as I mentioned, cobalt 65.3 years, it's high energy, but it does decay much quicker because of the disintegration happening within the isotope itself. So ultimately, the selection of the isotope technology to be used is application-dependent. And this is why we require to do this feasibility in order to determine the best solution. Look, thanks, Stefan. I mean, that's, again, it's a really detailed and informative response that you've given there. And it's clear there's a whole range of options to select from. And RTI is going to require application details from an end user to make an informed decision on which analyzer type and also the isotope to use. Now, when you were providing your description there, you, you mentioned something about half-life and something you hear a lot about nucleonic devices. And you mentioned earlier how cobalt-60 presents a challenge once it's reached its half-life. What do you actually do with it when it's reached that point and, and how you dispose of radioactive resources? You know, I've seen myths out there that once they reach this lifespan that these radioactive resources then buried in the middle of a desert, for example. So I wonder if you could address those sort of uh, misconceptions for me. Yeah, yeah, sure, Sean. Um, I mean, uh, the, the misconceptions about the fact that, um, some of these stuff, uh, these used isotopes get stored under sea and within mine shafts and that, there, there is some truth to it. And again, the management and disposal of these isotopes are very strongly regulated by some organizations globally. We have to understand that uh, once it's reached a specific half-life where it becomes unusable, uh, it has to be disposed of. 
And there are, there are various companies that actually manage the d- disposal of these isotopes globally. And uh, in Australia, we've got several of those um, that do manage this. And we have to understand also, in, in addition to that, that some of these isotopes, although it's reached a non-usable uh, activity for a specific application, it can be reused in another application where perhaps the pipe is not as big as the previous application. So they can be reused and... Uh, reutilized within within some of these operations. It is by law a requirement that the, the country of manufacture and, and the actual company of manufacture at some point have to take these uh, these isotopes back. We then assist our customers in terms of documentation requirements in order to dispose of these isotopes. If it cannot be utilized in a a different application, uh, it can be sent back to the country of origin, uh, where it has to be disposed of in a regulated manner. Now, as I mentioned before, AMBI has got a 432-year half-life, so you can understand the management of that isotope becomes extremely arduous. Hence the the reluctance to, to 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 kind of incorporate that kind of isotope within the instrumentation or the the equipment supplied by these OEMs are very high, and they would prefer not to. The advantage with using Californium two five two at two point six five years uh, half life obviously becomes evident in that. Um, it can be topped up uh, after 2.65 years by just adding an additional isotope to it. And after a period of approximately 10 years, all those isotopes that have now actually reached half the uh, capacity or, or life are then disposed of in countries uh, that manufacture those. And, and probably the biggest suppliers of uh, Californium 252 is Russia and, and uh, uh, the U.S., Cesium-137 isotopes at 30 years half-life. I've seen them being utilized again in different applications and they can be purchased as uh, as second-hand isotopes. But there is also a definitive uh, period that you can use these isotopes for that is defined for each isotope individually after which um, there is a possibility it might leak out of the uh, capsule which then creates a hazard for both side people and the public in general. But um, I want to I wanna kind of emphasize the point that um, the, the management and storage and disposal of these isotopes are very, very, very strongly regulated. And the OEMs will definitely assist the customer in the disposal process of these isotopes. So I think it's very clear from that, Steph. And I mean, that's the the end users are not left to their own devices on this. They're not left wondering what they need to do right. when something reaches its half life. They're not left wondering how to dispose. I mean, it's a it's a full closed loop system whereby customers can address the needs of expired isotopes and also replace and extend the life of their plant. Now, look, I mean, it's been a great chat today. Unfortunately, we've once again come to the uh, the, the end of this particular episode. And we'd love to leave an open invitation for you to come back again for future episodes of Yokogawa Debunks. Yeah, thank you very much, Sean. I'm looking forward to that. I would strongly recommend that customers do reach out to us if they do see a need for such technology, but are still concerned about the use of radioactive isotopes on the various sites. And um, I think this initiative in terms of debunking some of these myths around the use of technology on, on various sites are very important. And again, congratulations on this initiative. 
and debunking many of the myths that are out there one at a time. So to you, our audience, thank you very much for listening today. And thank you again for Stefan. And if you've got any questions, please reach out to uh, to ourselves at debunks at yokogawa.com or direct to Stefan at stefan.nl at rtiaustralia.com. And don't forget to like and share your favorite episode of Debunks on your social media channels. Until next time, Yokogawa Debunks. <laughs>